Let's take a little time and talk now about the state that we are living in. Political, spiritual, maybe some life. While you are listening to Phyllis Favor. Pastor Jonathan Mason, and I want to welcome you to another edition of the Pastor's Office. And 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 before we even go into our our subject and our guest today, I want to say happy 64th church anniversary to the Northeast Baptist Church, the church that I've been blessed to pastor now uh, for almost seven years. But again, as I've shared with you before, I grew up in this church. My father pastored this church for 41 years. Uh, And so I've been here almost all my life. Uh, And so we celebrated our 64th anniversary today. We celebrated those whose shoulders we stand upon uh, and are able to do what we do because they sacrificed for us. We certainly want to thank Pastor Owen Gowans of the Mount Moriah Baptist Church for bringing a powerful word this afternoon uh, that we will certainly feast upon uh, and use as motivation as we continue to go forth and do God's will right here in the city of Philadelphia, in the state of Pennsylvania, in the United States of America, and worldwide. But listen, this is the last Sunday uh, of Black History Month. We've had a great month talking to trailblazers, talking to people who have really made a difference, not only in the lives of African Americans, but in the lives of this country. And I, I'll share this with you real quick as I, as I introduce my guest. Uh, on September the 24th, 2016, uh, I was privileged and honored to attend a ceremony in Washington, D.C., Uh, It was at the time when I was serving as the international president of Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity, Incorporated, and they invited us to attend the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture Grand Opening Celebration. And I got a chance to interact with a lot of wonderful people that day. Got a chance to high-five Oprah, talk to Pastor Jamal Bryant, talk to General Colin Powell, other uh, uh, great luminaries of the day. But I want to share with you that the highlight of my day, the highlight of that experience was taking a photograph with members of the Tuskegee Airmen, with authentic Tuskegee Airmen. You know, I've I've spent a lot of time in my life researching the Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, and not only have I researched them, but I've had an opportunity to be mentored by one of them. That gentleman's name is Henry Moore. And in Phi Beta Sigma fraternity, we called him the Honorable Henry Moore. Uh, he passed away a few years ago, and we miss him every day, but we honor his legacy 
not only as a member of Phi Beta Sigma, not only as uh, uh, one of the trailblazers down at, uh, at West Virginia State University, uh, not just a great man, but, but, but a trailblazer uh, in our time. We honor him. Today, it is my privilege and honor to bring another Tuskegee Airman uh, into the pastor's office. Uh, this is a privilege and an honor for me, and I'm not going to hold him from you any longer. Uh, Dr. Eugene Richardson, welcome, sir, to the pastor's office. Thank you. It is my privilege and my honor to have you here today. And as I shared with, with our listeners here on Philly's Favor, the Tuskegee Airmen are, they're not only trailblazers, they're legendary in the American culture. Tuskegee Airmen are men whose shoulders we rest upon today. Uh, but before we get into talking about your experience at Tuskegee uh, with the Airmen, I want to talk a little bit about you, sir. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about where you were born and raised, a little bit about your background? Well, I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. I left there as an infant, but I consider Toledo, Ohio, to be my hometown. Because I, my formative years, from 6 to 16, I lived in Toledo. And then we moved over to Camden. My father was a minister, so we moved to Camden, New Jersey, to a church. And from there, I went into service in 1943. October 43 is when I went into service. Okay. And and so when you went into the service in 1943, uh, was it your desire to become a pilot? I mean, talk to us a little bit about uh, how you ended up in that particular capacity. Well, I wanted to be a fly an airplane since I was about five years of age. I saw an air service put on by the five Blackbirds in Mansfield, Ohio. And from that time on, all through my years, I wanted to be a pilot. And, uh, you know, the war came along in '41. And uh, they wanted to build up a supply of pilots, so uh, they they arranged for people to take a test. And if you pass that test, they'll put you on track to be a pilot instead of you going uh, register and going into the regular Army draft. So I, I was 17 then, but in October 43, I was after my 18th birthday, that's when I was inducted into into the military, and I went to uh, Keister Field, Mississippi, that was a training and classification center. And from there, I went to Tuskegee. And in January of 44, I got to Tuskegee. And in March of 45, I completed my pilot training at Tuskegee. And March 11, I got my uh, wings and commission as a second lieutenant. Wow. Now, first of all, talk to me a little bit about being a pilot in the 40s. Certainly, that was not... Uh, something that was common uh, for black men in the United States. I mean, talk to us a little bit about going through that training and any potential adversity you faced and, and how you overcame it. Well, first of all, it took a lawsuit for us to actually become pilots. Uh, during the 30s, governments had the, uh, a civilian pilot training program. That is, they had a pilot training for college students throughout the country. The government, you know, government expense, so they could hopefully get military pilots. But they initially, there were no provisions for, for black guys to go, to go to the pilot training. So they got with the NAACP, and they sued the Army. One of the fellows finished that civilian pilot training program at Howard University. I mean, they, had, they, they allowed six black colleges 
to have the, the pilot training program. Tuskegee, Howard, Hampton, Delaware State, North Carolina, West Virginia State, North Carolina, AT&T. And um, one of the fellows in the Howard program completed the program, got a certificate, and he presented it to the Army so he could be admitted to uh, the Army Air Corps. And they kept refusing him, so he got with NAACP, and they sued the Army. This guy's name was Yancey Williams, Yancey Williams. He got with the Army Air Corps, moved with the NAACP, and they sued the Army. And with their lawsuit, they said, okay, we'll have a squadron 90, we'll set up a squadron, squadron 99 will be for black pilots. Now, so far as the Army was concerned, based on a report from 1925, uh, black men didn't have the skills or the courage or the intelligence or the patriotism to be military pilots. But, but after that lawsuit, the upper military would say, okay, this will be an experiment to prove to you that black men cannot be pilots. And so they said, you'll be able to set up Squadron 99 for you. And um, the, uh, the Tuskegee Airmen stories are real long involved. So there's so many people sure. that make up that story. Absolutely. One of the guys was Benjamin Oliver Davis, Jr., Mm-hmm. He entered West Point in 1932. He was the only black cadet there, and they tried to force him to quit. But Davis was determined to be a, to finish West Point because he, he his father was a Buffalo soldier. So he heard his father and other officers talk about this 1925 report and what the Army thought about people of color. His father had paid for him to get a, a, a plane ride, a bowling field. If once he had that plane ride, he wanted to become a pilot. So he gets into West Point to try to show, you know, figure, figure he was a West Point graduate. They, they couldn't say anything negative about him. So as I said, in 1932, Benjamin Oliver Davis Jr. gets into West Point. He's the only black cadet there, and they tried to force him to quit. Well, Davis was determined he was going to complete West Point. But at West Point, they they silenced and ostracized him. No one was allowed to befriend him or talk to him except out giving orders. And they would not let him have a roommate. On Sundays, it was like free time. And you could eat anywhere. Normally, you'd go by the numbers. But on Sundays, it's free time. And you could sit anywhere in the mess hall if the upperclassmen at a table gave permission. Davis would go from table to table requesting permission to, to sit and eat, and he was always denied permission. So he wound up eating by himself on Sundays. But yet when that class was graduated in 1936, out of 276 cadets graduating that year, Benjamin Oliver Davis Jr. was number 35 from the top. Wow. He's in the top 13% of the graduating class at West Point. Well, now he, once again, he goes to the goes to uh, apply for a pilot training with the Army, and they refused him. He was sent to uh, Fort Benning in Georgia to be an instructor for an ROTC instructor. But even there, the officers did not want him and his family to go into the officers' club. So he struggled as best he could, but eventually he got to Tuskegee, got to Tuskegee for the flying program there. 
And Benjamin Albert Davis Jr., uh, he and five other cadets completed flying training in 1942, Class 42C. Benjamin Albert Davis Jr. and three other guys completed pilot training and got their uh, got their pilot's wing. Now Davis already had a commission out of West Point, but the other guys were commissioned when they got when when they got their wings. And Davis. Um, a long, long, long story. But at any rate, Davis becomes the commander of a group of uh, of, of uh, squadrons. There are four black squadrons, the 99th, the 100th, the 301st, and the 302nd. Those four squadrons made up the 332nd Fighter Group. And Benjamin Davis was the commander of that group. And uh, eventually, after a lot of some more nonsense and junk, they eventually go overseas, and uh, I don't know if you saw the movie, a movie Red Tail. Absolutely. Okay, that movie, uh, George Lucas, Star Wars Lucas, he tried went around to a lot of different studios to try someone try to get someone to make a movie about black pilots. None of them would. So George Lucas spent ninety three million of his dollars to make that movie Red Tails. Now, they didn't have anybody sit down and write a script for a movie. They just took the combat record of the 332nd group under Davis and put that on the screen. That was the movie Red Tails, the actual combat record of of, of pilots uh, flying in Europe. You're listening to Philly's Favor, 100.7 FM and 99.5 HD3. We are talking to Dr. Eugene Richardson, one of the Tuskegee Airmen. And, and, and Dr. Richardson, uh, I want you to kind of talk about that combat record real quick uh, that we just spoke about. But let me tell our Philly's Favor listeners, just in case you didn't know, the Tuskegee Airmen were the first black fighter pilots in the nation. They fought in World War II over in Europe. Listen to this. They shot down 112 enemy aircraft. Uh, right. uh, 112 enemy aircraft. And by the way, these were men that weren't supposed to be skilled or able uh, uh, to fly planes. Uh, and they were exemplary in their service. We were just talking about uh, Benjamin O. Davis and his record with his group. Dr. Richardson, talk to us about that combat record. Well, as you said, they shot down 112 uh, aircraft. Now, the first the first guy that shot down a German airplane, they were over in Africa, their first assignment was in North Africa. And he shot down a P-40 in 1943. And uh, the guy's spirits, uh, you know, were buoyed by that. So the first group that they were assigned to was a guy named was 333rd Group, commanded by Colonel Moldmeyer, who didn't want them, but he had to take them because they were assigned to them. But he uh, more or less ignored them. But they were transferred to the 78th group. Colonel Bates uh, commanded the, uh, Group 78, and the 99th was made to be an integral part of that group. And whenever the, when that group went out on missions, the 99th was right there with them. But the 99th, you know that Hitler, that Mussolini threw in with Hitler. And between Mussolini and Hitler, they controlled, uh, you know, most all, all of Europe. Well, the United States drove the Germans out of North Africa. That's where the 99th was. But and the Germans were driven out of North Africa. And now the United States wants to go in and um, try to reconquer some of Europe. So they entered uh, Italy through the port of Anzio. 
which was a little south of Rome. And the 99th was given the job of patrolling the skies over Anzio to make sure Germans didn't come in and mess up with our invasion. Well, in a week's time, our guy shot down 18 German aircraft. In a week's time. Now they're beginning to notice these black pies and how good they are. So um, they were asked to escort bombers in the 15th Air Force. Now, the 15th Air Force had uh, B-17s and B-24s. Each of those bombers had a crew of 10. So they asked uh, uh, Davis if this guys would, if guys would escort bombers. And Colonel Davis said, well, listen, we need, we need better airplanes. They're flying P-40s in. He said, we need better airplanes if we're going to, you know, make those long missions. So they gave him P-51s, which was like one of the best airplanes, you know, United States airplane during the war. And each group, out of each group, there are about four squadrons in the group. But in order to tell what, what squadron you were in, you, you painted your airplane a different color. So the guys at the 332nd painted their, painted their tails red. As just as a distinguishing mark from the other other guys that were checkers and stripes and all that kind of stuff. Well, the 332nd painted their tails a solid red. That's how they became known as the Red Tails. They escorted bombers for a year on 200 and some missions. For the longest time, the record was that none of the bombers under the protection of the Red Tails got shot down. But years later, in going through some German records and stuff, they learned that there were a few American bombers shot down that were escorted by Red Tails. But the Red Tails had the lowest number of bomber losses of any of the squadrons. We had saved a whole lot of white boys' lives <laughs> by not letting those bombers get shot down. Absolutely. Now, they didn't want guy, black eyes to fly, but when they see how good they were, they were requesting. As a matter of fact, Colonel Davis named his airplane by request across the side of his airplane were in big letters, by request, because the bomber guys kept requesting that the Red Tails be their escort. You know, and uh, that's how we were able to shoot down uh, 112 airplanes. But in the in the movie Red Tails, you see where the guys also uh, sank a destroyer. And when they reported that, uh, intelligence didn't want to believe them. They said, okay, well, well, check our cameras. Now, on a fighter plane, whenever you pull the trigger, a camera takes a picture of whatever's out there. So there were four or five guys at that time that were coming coming back from an escort mission, and they fly over the harbor of Trieste in northern Italy, and they see this ship out there. So the guys go down and start making fighter passes at it because it was a, it wasn't our it was a German ship, and um, that ship was carrying torpedoes for submarines, and some of the bullets hit those torpedoes and torpedoes blew up. And caused that ship to sink. They, on camera, they they have a picture of the of the ship over, over on its side, you know, in the process of sinking. Hmm. And that's that's in the movie Red Tails. Uh, we also shot up a whole lot of trains, a lot of wag, a whole lot of stuff. Right, right. And, and all this stuff is mentioned in in, in, in the movie. Sure. And, and and I want I want you, Philly's favorite listeners, to think about this. This is in the forties. The yes. Tuskegee Airmen shattered stereotypes. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they shattered stereotypes and really, when you think about it, set the stage for the civil rights movement in the 50s and the 60s. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Listen, in, uh, in 2006, we received the Congressional Gold Medal presented to us by President Bush. The front of that medal has portraits of, uh, of uh, pilots and mechanics and so forth, but on the obverse of that medal, there are airplanes, but then it also states why we got the medal. It says uh, that outstanding combat record inspired revolutionary reform of the armed services. Mm-hmm. That refers to the fact that in 1948, President Harry Truman recognized how well men of color were performing, and especially how guys with Miller performing this fantastic stuff of flying airplanes. So President Truman issued Executive Order 8891, which in effect ended segregation in the military. Up to that point, our military was originally segregated by race because they didn't think that, that white soldiers should be under the command of, uh, uh, of officers of color. The military was originally segregated, but after President Truman issued that order, that ended segregation. What an accomplishment. What an yeah. accomplishment. Now, Dr. Richardson, you, you received your wings in 1945. Talk to us a little bit about your career after the war. Well, after the war, I uh, used the GI Bill and went to, uh, went to Temple University and then to um, Penn State, where I got my, my, uh, my doctor's degree. But my career was in education. I was a math and science teacher in Philadelphia. Okay. Now, you're up in Frankfurt? Yes, sir. Well, I was at Harding Junior High School as a teacher. Oh, my goodness, right around the corner. Torsdale and Wakeling, yes. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Now, back in the 60s, the school district, uh, the school district was, was, there was a lot of segregation within the school district. And there were very few black administrators in the school district. Well, a superintendent by the name of Shed, Mark Shedd, wanted to integrate the Philadelphia school system. So one of the things they did, they asked um, black teachers to transfer to the Northeast to integrate the faculties of schools in the Northeast. Well, I was teaching at Barrett Junior High School in South Philadelphia, but I transferred to Harding Junior High School as a math teacher mm-hmm. in, in the, sometime during the 60s. And there I became, I became an assistant principal. And later on, after I got my doctorate, I became a principal. Uh, not a, I was assistant principal at, at Harding, but I became a principal of another school there in, in district, whatever the district was called back then. Hmm. Okay, yes, you were right around the corner from our church, no question yeah, about it. Yeah, and Wickland, yes. Uh-huh. Yes, sir, yes, sir. So, you know what, it's, it's, it's ironic that we have you on today uh, as we look at really the the the— I guess the most aggressive fighting we've seen in Europe uh, since World War II, uh, mm-hmm. with Putin pushing into Ukraine, yeah, uh, an oh, independent boy. country. I mean, what, what what are your thoughts on that? You guys fight. You, you guys fought to free Europe, and now it looks like Putin wants to create the old USSR. Well, every once in a while, these devils come up. You know, like Trump, Putin, and Trump. They want to do all kinds of crazy things. These guys, these guys are power hungry. And they want to see themselves as as great commanders or great dictators of areas. So Trump and Putin are cut from the same cloth. And now Putin wants to uh, restore the Soviet Union as it was before the Cold War. 
Yeah. So he's got people doing all kinds of suffering now because of, of his desire. I don't know why somebody doesn't assassinate that sucker. Well, now, <laughs> I understand. Well, listen, you know, one thing I did want to talk to you about, we, we kind of talked about this off air, uh, but you were very close to one of my mentors, uh, and that is uh, Henry Moore. Yeah, uh, Henry Moore and I went out on talks many, many times. Many, many times we were out on talks yeah, and, together. And, and, and you know what was interesting? The point I wanted to bring up about uh, Henry Moore is he came up, in the midst of segregation and Jim Crow, just like you did. He's uh, in Georgia. That's right. That's right. Uh, called Osceola, Georgia. That's right. You he spoke of it many times. That's right. And went and went over to West Virginia State University. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, and, yeah. and, and here's the thing. When we would talk about West Virginia State University in the fraternity, uh, we would talk, you know, there were some times where there were whites who wanted to join our organization. And believe it or not, many of our members were against it. But the person who spoke up strongly for integration in, not o- in our fraternity, not only at West Virginia State, but in our fraternity across the board was Henry Moore. Henry Moore, that's right. He did the same thing in our group. When uh, a white guy wanted to join the Philadelphia chapter of Tuskegee Airmen, some negative stuff came up, and Henry Moore was the one that stood up, and uh, he talked against whoever that person was, whatever, some letter they wrote or something. And Henry Moore was the one that stood up and fought against it. He, 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 was so, he was so against segregation that he wouldn't even support some black things because it would appear as if he, was, he wanted uh, segregation. And, and, and it's amazing to me, Dr. Richardson, after coming through what he came through, uh, and if you listen to his story, I mean, in, in, in the deep south, uh, in the heart of Jim Crow and segregation and all that he encountered, all the abuse he suffered, he became one of the great fighters for integration. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, sir. You know, he, he passed away. He, as you know, he lived in a place called Wasilla, Georgia. Mm-hmm. But he passed away. And some little time later, some lady came in and joined our chapter. And lo and behold, she was from Osceola, Georgia. I said, oh, man, I wish Henry was still alive. I wanted to hear those two talk about their experiences in Osceola, Georgia. Absolutely, absolutely. Massa Wisham, he used to talk about. That's it. That's it. Now, talk to us, because, I mean, we do know it's 2022, and uh, we sadly, we've lost a lot of the airmen. Uh, but how do you all stay connected? Uh, how many airmen are still living and, and telling this story? I mean, give, give us a little insight around that. Well, uh, it's only a guess as to how many are still living. It's, you just have to guess. But there's a chapter here in Philadelphia, and we take in associate members people that want to uh, work with us to help develop kids' interest in aviation. Mm-hmm. So we, the members that come in agree to help support the legacy of Tuskegee Airmen and support young people in uh, into career careers in aviation. Uh, there's no telling how many are left, but this is a surprise to many people. Originally, from 1941 all the way through 1946 to 47, there were about 15,000 Tuskegee Airmen. Now, that number includes anybody who did anything associated with uh, the functioning of black pilots during the war. Now, at Tuskegee, all the personnel were, it was a segregated unit, so all the personnel were black. 
except for the commander at that time, who was white. But later on, our commander became Benjamin Davis, Jr. But at Tuskegee, you know, the doctors, the cooks, the bakers, the nurses, the, the doctors, the mechanics, the engineers, the postal people, the street cleaners, the uh, you know groundskeeper, they're all, all black people. And that's how you get the number of 15,000. And uh, one of our guys, Charles McGee, uh, Brigadier General Charles McGee, who died about a month ago. He was 102 years of age. Wow. And he had the record of the greatest number of combat missions of any Air Force pilot. Now, he was in three wars, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And out of those three wars, flying 406 combat missions, he still lived to be 102. Wow. Wow. Absolutely amazing. I got to tell you, Dr. Richardson, I always, uh, when I was president of Phi Beta Sigma, and even after, uh, I used to love to go visit Tuskegee uh, uh-huh. and visit the graveyard. Uh, sounds a little uh, uh, morbid, but but I, I enjoyed visiting it because there was Booker T's grave, Booker T. Washington's grave, yes. uh-huh. but all around him were all of his wives. <laughs> they all buried around him. And uh, that was that was just amazing to me uh, that that the that, uh, you know, the women that he, uh, you know, married all of them were right there, buried right around him right in, around. in the cemetery. I said, <laughs> oh, boy. I said, Booker T. was a bad man. Oh, boy, <laughs> so, he was. <laughs> absolutely. Well, listen, uh, Dr. Richardson, um, God has blessed you to, to see uh, uh, many, many years, um, and certainly you've seen how our brothers and sisters have evolved, grown, and developed. Uh, you know, I would not want to end this interview uh, without hearing from you some words of advice uh, to young people coming up today. And and, and I I preached a message last week, and as part of that message, I talked about the fact that I don't really have a whole lot of time for folk that keep talking about the man is holding them down. Uh, I don't have a whole whole lot of time for folk that say the the deck is stacked against them, that that, 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 that society wasn't set up for them. I I don't have time for that. No, Uh, we we hold ourselves down. Uh, I tell young people that education is the elevator, and it just happens that today— a couple hours ago, I saw on television where President Biden appointed uh, Mrs. Jackson as a, a Supreme Court uh, judge. That's right. That's Jackson right. is the one that he selected. That's right. That's right. A young a young lady from Harvard University. Harvard University. And how do you get to Harvard University and then Harvard Law School? That's education. That's right. That's right. And uh, you mess up your education and play around out in the streets and with a lot of dumb nonsense, and you hold yourself back. But today, whatever you aspire to, you can you can pretty much accomplish. Well, Doctor Eugene J. Richardson Jr., I want to say thank you. Uh, thank you for being a trailblazer. Thank you for being someone whose shoulders we rest upon today. Uh, and just thank you for the contribution that you've made to our country, to our race, and to society as a whole. Well, thank uh, you, Reverend Mason, for the opportunity to talk. Well, to it talk is, to your group. Well, it has been our pleasure. And Philly's favorite listeners, Philly's favorite 100.7, 99.5 HD3, go out and do your research on the Tuskegee Airmen. Go out and do your research on Dr. Eugene J. Richardson, Jr. What Sir, else they could do is... Uh, you want to see about about West Point? 
I put in West Point Barracks in your computer and uh, scroll down, and you'll see the, the, the references to Benjamin Davis Jr. Uh, because of how, because of his character and stick to it at West Point, in spite of all the stuff he went through. In 2017, a new barracks was erected at West Point, and it was named after Davis. Wow. Wow. What a blessing. What a yes. blessing. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Eugene J. Richardson, Jr., thank you for giving us your time today. May God continue to bless and keep you, and we hope to be able to talk to you again real, real soon. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Phyllis, baby. Phyllis.